All right, take a seat. Ask the person next to you, where's Jesus? Anybody know? Any good feedback? We're going to be asking this question. It roots out of a passage in Luke chapter 24. But before I read it, I want to give you a little context. I know some people may have walked in here today, and when I say the story of Jesus, you're not really sure what I'm talking about. And so in short, God created everything, including you, and he loves you, and he showed that through sending his son Jesus to show us how to live, and Jesus also laid his life down as the sacrifice for our sins. And if you hear that and you're like, excuse me, it actually gets crazier because three days later, his tomb was empty. He was crucified on Friday. On Sunday, he was out and about. And uh, that might make a little more sense to you what I just said by the end of this today, but where we find ourselves in this story, in Luke 24, Jesus is going to appear to his disciples. So the tomb is empty, rumors are stirring, there's a lot of questions in his inner circle, they're all sitting together and they all feel pretty low right now because they abandoned Jesus, they're confused, they don't know what's going on, and here comes Jesus. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. He just pops out, what's up, guys? They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Never heard somebody say that. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Like, Jesus, do you believe in ghosts? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, very specific, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus is like, how come every time I do something epic, you guys think I'm a ghost? Walked on water, you all thought I was a ghost. Rise from the grave, you think I'm a ghost. Here's where we wanna hone in. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So this is when Luke wraps up his gospel, and basically Jesus shows up and goes, hey, I'm not dead. I'm very much alive, and now you guys have work to do. And everything's been pointing to this. Let me read the, the key verses right here, Luke 24 and, uh, 44 and 45 from the message. Then he said, Everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms have to be fulfilled. He went on to open their understanding of the word of God, showing them how to read their Bibles this way. Asking the question, where's Jesus? So the context that we would say Bible are scriptures for these guys, the disciples, this was what we would call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. It was the foundation of their faith. It was the history of their people. And they knew all this stuff. This is a culture that was fluent in all of this. They had this stuff memorized, but there were still questions and confusion specifically surrounding a Messiah. And Jesus goes, hey, 
all of that stuff, it's all been pointing to me. And so he begins to open their minds to that reality. Now, how many people in here have ever done the Bible in a year reading plan? Hands in the air, okay? Let's try this. How many people have completed the Bible in a year reading plan? Couple of you, nice job. Let's make everybody else feel better. How many people have made it past at least Leviticus before? Okay, good job. The Bible can be very confusing, specifically the Old Testament. It can feel like a bunch of fragments that don't really fit together or make sense. Sometimes you're just trudging through genealogies, like why is this in here? It's just name after name after name. The next thing you know, you're reading a story like, is this Game of Thrones or the Bible? <laughs> right, shout out to the book of Judges. It's like, what are we doing here? And in this moment, Jesus is saying his whole story, this has all been pointing to me. Do you guys remember Where's Waldo books, anybody? For Gen Z, these were books that, um, well, let me start here. A book was this thing. <laughs> Google what a book is, and there was Where's Waldo of that. You'd open up these pages, and you'd be looking for this one guy, Waldo. And sometimes the spread would be like a bunch of people and a bunch of things going on. Sometimes it'd be really easy to just be like, there he is, right there, quickly. Sometimes it would take you forever to find Waldo. And the reality is that the Bible is a where's Jesus, that the whole thing points to him, that he's within it all. This whole story points to Jesus. Like Ryan said in the beginning, the Bible is one unified story that all leads to Jesus. So maybe it's always just seemed confusing and fragmented to you, or maybe you were taught like you're the main character of the Bible, just put your name in every single verse, it's all about you. And God has invited us into his story, but this is the story of God. And it all centers on Jesus. And so in this series, we're gonna start to ask this question as we open up scripture, where's Jesus in all of this? This week, we're gonna talk about the law. We're gonna talk the next three weeks about the exact three things that Jesus laid out. So you're like, oh, 4th of July, it's probably gonna be a light, easy, I won't even have to think about anything. Oh, good, we're talking about the law. Sweet, it's gonna be a fun day. Next week, Ryan will talk about the Psalms because he likes emotions and then... The following week, I will talk about the prophets because I like facts and uh, ask this question all the way through, where's Jesus? And so today, I have creatively titled this message, The Law, so that you'll never forget what we talked about on July 3rd, 2022. And when I say the law, some of you maybe with the church background, you're like, oh yeah, Moses, 10 commandments, you're on the right track, let me catch everybody else up in case you aren't sure, what are you talking about with the law of Moses? Uh, in Genesis 1, God creates everything, including mankind. And I'm not, I promise I'm not gonna go chapter by chapter until we get to the law, but God creates everything, including mankind, for relationship with him. But love is not love at all if it's forced, and so mankind has free will, the ability to make decisions, and Adam and Eve choose to sin. They walk away from God, they disobey him, and so sin fractures creation. It fractures the relationship between a perfect holy God and imperfect, fallen, broken people. There's a sin problem, a chasm here. And Adam and Eve walk out of the garden and it says that God covers them on their way out in their nakedness and their shame and their sin that he covers them. Where's Jesus? God's already pointing that he will cover the sins of his children. And then human beings go and there's sin rampant. They're just crazy. And in the midst of everything that's happening, he calls on this righteous man named Abraham. Father Abraham, right? He goes, hey, you are gonna have a family, your descendants will outnumber the stars, and through your family, I will reveal myself to the world. I will bless the world through this family. Where's Jesus? The coming blessing from this family. 
So Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who are very old and never been able to have a child, they have this miracle son, Isaac. Then Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the namesakes of the 12 tribes of Israel, this nation that was once a family starting with Abraham. So there's a nation of Israel, and this nation soon finds itself enslaved in Egypt, the powerful regime of the day. And this is where Moses enters the picture. Maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt movie or the Ten Commandments, have a little context for Moses. His mom sends him when he's a baby down the Nile to save him, and he ends up growing up in Pharaoh's palace of all places. And then things get crazy, long story, but he kills a guy, he flees to the desert, and it's there that God speaks to him through a burning bush and goes, hey, Moses, you, yes, you, murderer, stutterer, you're gonna go lead my people into freedom. So Moses goes back, and it's this back and forth with him and Pharaoh. There's the plagues, this whole story that leads to Moses doing his best Gandalf impression, staff in the ground, and God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through into freedom. And it's there that they are about to go embark on becoming this, this nation, this set-apart people that God first said to Abraham. They're going to go live and operate differently than all the other human king, kingdoms around them. The word holy means set apart. You are gonna be set apart in the way that you live and operate from everything around you. And at the foundation of that, God has to tell the people, here's how you do that. And that's what the law is. It's God telling his people, here's how you are going to live, and it's gonna be different than everything around you. Here's where that conversation starts to take place. Exodus 19, starting in verse three. Then Moses went up to God, which is such a casual way to say that. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I'm a God of grace and a God of freedom and I have carried you to freedom. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God. So God's saying, hey, it's time now. We're gonna establish this nation you're gonna operate differently. Are you ready for this? And they go, yes, we'll do whatever you say. And I wanna, as, as he starts to lay out the law, I wanna give you an analogy just so you can better kind of understand what the, how the law breaks down. But I have to ask you to drop your American politics. When you hear this, don't be mad or offended. Just understand the bigger picture analogy we're making here, okay? The 10 commandments which come first are like the Constitution for the Israelites. This is the bedrock principles. Everything will flow through this. This is the starting point. And then from there, there's over 600 other laws that come into play, and most of the time we read them and we're like, what? Why would that matter? And then we just end up arguing about whether we can have tattoos or not. <laughs> All of these other laws, you can think of them like federal laws for a specific people in a specific time in a specific place. They would have understood how different the way God's calling them to live would look than the other nations around them. But in our context, we read it like, don't boil a goat, and we're like, wasn't planning on it. So God starts to lay out for them, here is how you are to operate. And they have this fateful line, they say, we will do whatever God says. And as human beings, we hear them say that and go, no, you won't. And if you've read a little farther in your Bible in a year plan, you know that they do not. Like, shockingly fast, they do not keep all of the things that God tells them. Almost immediately, 
And so there's still this sin problem. They're to be set apart. They're the people that can come to God. They can have this relationship with him, but the chasm of sin is still there. And so God institutes the sacrificial system. These are big Bible concepts. We're giving an overview right now, okay? So there's the law that we know that they're not gonna really be able to fulfill. So the sacrificial system is what takes care of this gap. So continually sacrifices of animals are being made, and here's why. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement, to cover for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So scripture says the wages of sin is death. Sin demands a life be given for it. That is the wages of sin, is death. And so in the spilling of blood, where the life is, there is atonement or covering for the sin. And this is going on repeatedly and repeatedly because the Israelites never can do it right. And so the first thing that you gotta understand about the law is that the law is a death sentence. The wages of sin is death. We are sinful, just like the Israelites. And so this law is a death sentence. It's kind of ironic to hang up the 10 commandments in your house because it's kind of like being like, hey, I just got put on death row, check out my certificate. <laughs> hey, here's my x-ray to show how broken I am, check this out. Pretty cool, right? The law is a death sentence, an impossible task. And what we have to understand as we start asking the question, where's Jesus, is that the law is not the cure for the sin problem, it's the diagnostic to point us to the fact that we need a cure for the sin problem. Here comes Jesus, fulfilling the law, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Hebrews 10, verse one, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skip to verse 10. It's like the thesis of all this. And by that will, the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The disciples are sitting in a room and Jesus is opening up the law to them and they're remembering when he in the Sermon on the Mount said, hey, Matthew 5, 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so maybe some of this is lost on you. Maybe culturally you're like, I can't really relate to this, but the disciples are sitting in a room and they know all this stuff. And when Jesus brings up the law, they're probably thinking, great, we feel worse than we already did. We hung you out to dry. Now you're reminding us of the law that our people have never been able to keep. We're all sinners, we understand there's a death sentence on us, but then Jesus starts to open their minds to understand this has all been pointing to him. That Jesus paid the wages of sin with his death. That Jesus took the death sentence that was due us on ourselves. That Jesus, all of us, every single one of you, you were in a prison cell on death row simply because you are sinful, because you are human. And Jesus conquered death, laying down his life, taking that death sentence, then walks through the prison with the keys and opens up every single cell and goes, you're free to go. This is the foundation of the gospel. This is why on Good Friday, every single year, we get together and celebrate the fact that Jesus took the death sentence on himself. This is a loving God pointing all the way back to the garden when he covered Adam and Eve. It says, I have made covering once and for all. And your righteousness is because of what my son has done and taking the death penalty on himself as the perfect sacrifice and fulfiller 
of the law. Now we could just stop right there. Like that is where Jesus is in the law. And every message I've ever heard about the law, this is what we're talking about because it's the foundation of the gospel. It is only by your faith. Scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. That is the foundation of our faith. And I wanna spend the rest of our time now challenging you with the law in a different way. From a foundation of salvation that only comes because of Jesus, only comes through our faith in him, I wanna ask, what if there's something more to the law than we tend to see? Because we don't quite know what to do with it, right? It's like, well, we know that Jesus paid the death penalty, so does it matter? Some people care about it. Some people think we shouldn't get tattoos. Like, what do we do with all this stuff? And I think there's generally two types of personalities in how we approach when God tells us what to do and how to live. So we have a pendulum that I wanna show you, and there's two sides to this, and one side is licentiousness and one side is legalism, and we tend to, as human beings, just swing to one side or the other, be a little more geared that way, depending maybe on your upbringing, your church context, or your personality. So licentiousness is the idea that you have this license of grace by Jesus that goes, sweet, yeah, raise my hand, thanks Jesus, awesome, I've got insurance, now I'm gonna keep living my life exactly the same, I'm gonna go do whatever I want, but then when I die, I guess I just turn my card in, like, okay, fine, no problem but I'm gonna keep doing things my way. And this side is kind of asking the question, how far can I stretch the grace of God? It's like the couple that asks you like, um, maybe we're supposed to wait till marriage, but like, what can we get away with? Like, what can we do? We're asking the wrong question. How far can I stretch the grace of God? But then legalism, this side, and a lot of you, I know we have a lot of Bible Belt kids that grew up in a legalistic background, this side asks the wrong question because this side asks, well, how far can the grace of God actually reach? Like, is it really sufficient for that sin? Is it, really, is it really sufficient for that person? And we tend to go back and forth and back and forth and keep asking the wrong questions. And neither side ends up actually living in freedom because one side ends up living as a slave to sin and one side ends up living as a slave to the law that Jesus already fulfilled for them. So we gotta ask better questions, and I wanna ask you, with the foundation of the, the law as a death sentence that Jesus paid for, what if there is actually life to be found in the law? What if when God tells us uh, what to do, there's actually beauty and freedom in that? Let's listen to uh, what David says in Psalm 19 about the law, starting in verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Never would have thought of that. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple, bringing wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. It's finding joy in the law. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes, illumination being brought to him through the law. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. I don't wanna be a slave to sin. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Now, you can do a little Bible study and you can make an argument that David was a weird dude. And I will not argue with you. This guy's laying awake at night like, oh, the law is sweet like honey. Mm, love that stuff. 
God telling me what to do. It's my favorite. But David was a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 16, he says that God makes known to him the path to life. So what if the law is an invitation to life? What if freedom in life is actually found in obedience to God? Working from a foundation that Jesus paid the price, that you are only saved because of him, have to double down on that a million times. You can't earn your righteousness, but what if from your salvation there is freedom to be found in listening to God when he tells you what to do? And I think part of this and why we misunderstand it, we love autonomy. That's like who we are as a culture. Don't, nobody's gonna tell me what to do. So this is really hard for us to grasp. And I think that makes its way into when God tells us to do something. Who are you to tell me? And he's like, um, God, but okay. But we also don't really understand the context of the law when God lays out for his people, here's how you're to live, the way that, that the Israelites would have received this. Because they're the ones that said, hey, we'll do it all. Bring it on. Please tell us. God, we would love to know how you think we should live because we just experienced hundreds of years of how things go when Pharaoh's in charge. Egypt is the perfect picture of a kingdom where men have ultimate power and in their sinful brokenness and selfishness, they have whatever they desire and they rule and lord over people. The Israelites are receiving the law as a people who were weak and vulnerable and oppressed in Egypt that have just been given freedom for the first time in a long time. And the way that they would have heard these things, these commands from God were so counter Egypt. Lifting up the weak, lifting up the vulnerable, giving a new vision and picture for how society should operate. This would have blown their minds. We hear this and it's like God saying, don't do this, don't do this because I'm God and I'm trying to get you in trouble. But they would have heard this as freeing and a vision of how they're supposed to operate so different than what they saw around them. So I wanna go through the 10 commandments and show you how they would have heard these things based on their experience in Egypt. Number one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now in Pharaoh's kingdom, Pharaoh was God. This man, this tyrant, could rule and do whatever he wanted and rule over other human beings and pushed them into a life of slavery. But God is a God of freedom. In God's kingdom, he prevents people from holding ultimate power over one another because he's God and he is king. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In Pharaoh's kingdom, they could make idols. They could make their little gods to manipulate other people and to push the agenda of the powerful. But in God's kingdom, he is on the throne and his image and his name will not be used to manipulate other human beings and to oppress them. Which is what number three tells us. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now we grew up all hearing, don't say OMG. That's like the most important commandment. God was just like, of all the things, don't say this phrase ever. But what this actually means is don't pull the God card and manipulate people. Because in Pharaoh's kingdom, if someone more powerful than you said, hey, Pharaoh said, you have to do whatever they say. And Pharaoh's a tyrant. But Pharaoh, the, God, the Pharaoh card could be pulled and manipulated and used uh, to exercise power over anybody. But in God's kingdom, his name will not be used to manipulate and oppress. So be careful 
10 a.m. service, telling somebody that God told you that they're supposed to marry you. For you, right back there. Been friends with Ryan for a long time. Got in a front row seat to this one. God's name will not be used to manipulate. Number four, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now in Pharaoh's kingdom, rest was for the powerful and the rich. Everybody else worked so that they could live a life of rest. But in God's kingdom, everybody rests. Even the animals, everybody rests. Every human being is given the chance to stop and be refreshed by the presence of God and be reminded that their value is not in what they can produce through their work. The next two commandments, I'm gonna go a little out of order, but you guys can handle this. Five and seven speak to family. Number five, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now in Pharaoh's kingdom, families are torn apart. Men are doing whatever they wanted, whatever they want, grabbing whatever their eyes desire. People are rebelling against everything. Everyone is doing whatever they want and tearing apart the family structure. But in God's kingdom, humans are to be honored, families are to be held together, and marriages are to be honored and full of fidelity on both sides, which men in a culture like Egypt would laugh at. This is so counter Egypt, to elevate marriage, to elevate the family. Number six, you shall not murder. In Pharaoh's kingdom, the vulnerable and the weak were subject to violence and genocide. The Israelites knew this very well. But in God's kingdom, every human life has equal value. And the last three speak to social, economic living, justice. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or covet your neighbor's wife or male or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In Pharaoh's kingdom, the weak are vulnerable to economic exploitation, have no rights, no legal protection, no justice. The powerful just take what they want in a culture eating itself on discontentment. But in God's kingdom, the weak and the vulnerable are protected, are given rights, every human being is given the same impartiality and justice. So the law was a death sentence, pointing to what we needed Jesus to do that we couldn't, but it also was an invitation to life. And you start to see the beauty of it and how the Israelites would have heard it when you realize that it spits in the face of an abusive, oppressive, corrupt culture like Egypt. But it's actually an invitation to freedom and flourishing and operating how God would say rather than how one tyrant would say. Then Jesus comes, he actually kind of doubles down on the law. Like he shows up and he says, I have come to fulfill it, right? We've already, we've already covered that part. But he also says, I haven't come to abolish it. I'm not saying that now you go just do whatever you want and nothing that my father said matters or that his will shouldn't matter in your lives. Instead, Jesus goes, hey, Sermon on the Mount, hey, you think you guys have it together because you've never killed somebody, but you have anger in your heart, that's murder. Okay, Jesus, you were supposed to be the cool one. You're making this sound even harder. 
oh, you think that you've got it all together because you haven't committed adultery, but you have lust in your heart, and so that's adultery. But Jesus can't be laying a heavier burden on us because he's the one who says, come to me, all who are weary, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We know that Jesus is going to fulfill the law for us, that he is the perfect sacrifice. He's taking the death sentence, and so Jesus, in covering the death sentence part, is showing us he wants us free for all of eternity, but he's also showing us that he wants us free today in the here and now, to a heart level, to be free of all of the Pharaoh within us. He gets asked about the law because he doesn't quite seem to operate with the law how everybody else in his culture thinks that he should. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, pause for a second. This guy, unknowingly, is actually doing something that we should all be doing. Hey, before I decide how I interpret this, what I think about this, Jesus, what do you think first? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you were on the licentious side and Jesus is starting to make things sound harder, all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, 613 laws down to two, sweet, no problem. Kind of vague, great, thanks Jesus. If you're on the legalism side, you start to go, whoa, 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 like the Pharisees. There's 613 laws, and we're trying to add more every single day. This, this seems like a bit of an oversimplification here. Just love God and love people. Don't you remember what God told Moses? And Jesus is going, I know exactly what he told Moses. Watch this. If you were to put a thesis statement together for the first four commandments, it would be this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Don't put idols in front of him. Let him be your first love. Don't use him to manipulate people, but be refreshed by him. Be refreshed by your identity that is in him, your heavenly father. Put him at the forefront of your life. And if you were to put together a thesis statement for the last six commandments, it would be this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't murder. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't oppress other people. Don't resent people because they have something that you don't, but love them. Jesus is pointing back to the intention from the beginning. Guys, this is where free life is found. When you love God and love people, how do we do that? Well, don't put other gods before him. Let God be God in your life and, and seek to love him every day of your life. And how do we love our neighbors? Well, don't, well, don't kill them. Don't lie to them. Don't steal from them. Honor your family. Hold it together. Operate with love with the people around you. And Jesus digs even deeper to the heart. He says, I'm not telling you this stuff to try to oppress you. I'm trying to free you. I don't want anger in your life. I don't want lust in your life. I want you to be free of sin. Galatians 5, 6 sums up life so simply. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This is what we've talked about today. The only thing that counts is your faith in Jesus that he took the death penalty for you. And it's by his blood that you are saved. That's the only thing that counts. And from that faith, it will express itself through what? Love of God and of your neighbor. 
This is the whole point of the law, and it's all been pointing to Jesus. So you picture the disciples again in a room, and they go, oh my gosh, all this time, we thought you weren't supposed to die. We thought everything was over, but you had to go pay the death sentence for us, the wages of sin, and you have risen from the grave to give us eternal life forever, but also, Jesus, you've laid out for us exactly how to live, to love God and to love people, and we're now called to go tell the world about what you've done, and we're gonna do it by loving God and loving people like you've told us to be set apart, wholly different since the beginning of this family. At our church, we say a lot that we are a bunch of imperfect people pursuing a perfect God. And I think we can all kind of cling to the imperfect part. We're all pretty aware that we are imperfect people, right? That we needed Jesus to come pay that death penalty, right? We get that, that's the foundation. The harder part is then to pursue the perfect God. Well, what do we do? How do we go operate? And I believe it's in that pursuit of God, when we follow what Jesus told us to do, that we actually find freedom. And so I wanna close up. I know this has been a lot of scripture, maybe a little bit of a heady sermon for your 4th of July weekend. But I wanna speak to, I think, three main groups in this room, and I'll start with the two on the pendulum. For some of you, if you lean toward the licentious side of just like, thanks, Jesus, for the card. I'll turn it in upon death. I'm gonna go do whatever I want. Let me just caution you with Galatians 5.13. It says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Sweet, great, all about it. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The reality is that freedom is not found in doing whatever you want whenever you want. Because if you do, as a human being who's fallen with a sin problem, you will end up Pharaoh of your own Egypt in no time and you'll be a slave to sin. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I want for you. I came to set you free from that. And so for you, maybe it's time to just listen to Jesus, to let him be God. Maybe the God that you put before him is you, and it's time to listen to him. Like if I wanted to understand how to really drive a Tesla, wouldn't it make sense for me to find a way to spend some time in the car with Elon Musk because he made the Tesla? so he probably knows better than anyone else. If I wanna know how to live life, wouldn't it make sense to go to the author of it and ask him, how should I do this? But in our human nature, we just go, don't tell me what to do. You don't know. I got this. We took our son, who's three, to his first swim lesson. And the first thing he said to his teacher was, I can do this on my own which he can't because he's at swim lessons. That's why he's there. And if we let him, it's not gonna go well. But this is our human nature, right? Oh God, you don't know what you're talking about. Stop telling me rules. Stop telling me what to do. I got this. And then we end up drowning. Slaves to sin. Pharaoh of our own Egypt. And so maybe it's time to see that Jesus actually wants freedom for you more than you want it for yourself and he's laid out the path to life, an invitation to life. And if you fall on the side of legalism, I wanna tell you Galatians 5.1, probably heard this verse a million times in your life because you probably grew up in church. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So when my brother and I were kids, I think I was about five, 
our parents got us to watch the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, the old one, the epic, amazing film. And uh, the next day after we'd watched it, my mom came out in our backyard and there was this big open space behind where we lived and my brother and I were down playing in it. And she looks down and my brother, my older brother is standing up on a hill, just yelling at me. And five-year-old me, I'm at the bottom of the hill with this huge log that I'm trying to haul up the hill. And my mom goes, hey, what are you doing? And my brother calls up, it's okay, mom, we're playing 10 commandments. He was the Egyptian and I was the Israelite. That's the game we were playing. And we've laughed about that as a family. And I also think it speaks to our human nature that we watched a movie that ends with God parting a sea and his people walking into freedom. And our takeaway was slavery. Somehow we missed the whole point. And I think we do that with the gospel so often. We try to haul a log up a hill that Jesus already carried for us. But the gospel of Jesus for you, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free from sin in order to go live an abundant life. And he has laid out the manual for us. So for you, it is time to start living from your salvation, not for it. To start living from blessing, not for blessing. Live from freedom, not for freedom, because Jesus paid for it and he's given it to you. Freedom is not nervously trying to keep a perfect record for the rest of your life. It's also not doing whatever you want whenever you want. Freedom is right in the middle found in Christ and standing on the salvation that he's given you and then going to live the way he called you to love God and to love people and be set apart in freedom in how you live. I appreciate you. You got this. There's one person. So if you guys would stand to your feet. Um... There's one last group in here, and I've been praying, maybe one person, that today is just the day of salvation. That something has clicked. Maybe you're a logical person, but it's made its way to your heart to realize that my whole life, I've always held Jesus at afar. I've never really understood this. I've always thought I had to earn my way to him, and today I've realized that he paid the penalty for me, that he is the sacrifice for my sin, and he has made a way for me to God for eternity and today. Or maybe you've just been running about in Egypt and realizing this isn't where life is found. I'm not free at all. It's time that I put my trust and my faith in Jesus. The only thing that counts, your faith in Jesus. And if you've never just done that, I want everyone to close their eyes and just invite you to boldly, if that's you, just raise your hand, just put it up in the air. We got some people in this room with hands up. And the reason that we tell you, hey, make an outward expression is simply because there's an internal decision the beginning of a transformation taking place, of salvation taking hold in your life that just happened. And that's just an outward move. And so I wanna pray with you. Church, we just had some people in this room put their hands up in the air to receive Jesus. I wanna pray with you and put some language. I'm just gonna pray and you put this in your words and talk to God. And I wanna invite you to come pray with our prayer team. We'll be in the back. I would love to pray with you. One of them would love to pray with you because you're not walking in this faith journey alone. We've got resources for you so that you can start to see where's Jesus. He's setting you free for eternity and today. So Jesus, I thank you that people right now have put their faith in you. The only thing that counts. Father, that heaven's getting more crowded right now. I thank you because of what you did for us, Jesus, that you took the death sentence that was on our shoulders on yourself because you are a God of love and you have been covering us since the beginning, giving us pictures of what you came to do, Jesus. 
And so today we receive your grace, your forgiveness, your blood that has washed over our sins, destroyed the chasm between us and God and given us eternity with you and also an invitation to life today. And so I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room that our faith, God, I pray that our faith, the only thing that counts would begin expressing itself more and more in love for you and in love for people as we are called to be set apart in the way that we operate in freedom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.